Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hey everyone, welcome along to the show. Today is a bonus episode because we've just released the 52nd one, and I thought that's actually pretty special because it's like a year of content that's been released every Tuesday morning. So today what I've done is gone back through some of the interviews, some of my favorites, some of the ones that were surprising for me, and picked out some extracts from several of these interviews on the moment that something changed for these people that I interviewed. And there's a real wide range of experiences here, but it was really interesting to go back and listen to these two or three minute extracts from such a wide variety of voices. So we're going to jump straight into the first one, which is John Hammond, and he's talking about the time that he first met his wife. Now, this interview is actually really special to me because three months after I'd recorded it, John passed away. And in the other part of the interview, we talk about his diagnosis with terminal cancer. So just to hear the freshness in his voice and his description of that day that he first met his future wife is really a touching thing. And I hope you enjoy hearing what he has to say. So you remember that moment? And Absolutely. Tell us about it. I uh, was at the University Ski Club uh, AGM, and I was sitting in uh, one of those big lecture theatres at the university, and she was down near the front, and the guy who was the president at the time, another good friend, uh, had stood up and said, if you don't know people and you want to meet people, then join the committee. Mm. And he said, just tap somebody on the shoulder if you don't know anybody and, and tell them. And I sat there thinking, well, yeah, I won't do that. Mm. But then at some stage, Erin, who is my wife, stood up and because she was being introduced. And I thought, bloody hell, I want to get on this committee. So I tapped the guy on the shoulder in front of me and I said, this is my name, John Hammond. Get me on this committee. I don't care what it is. Wow. I'll do whatever they want. Gosh. <laughs> and so I was on the committee like that. But um, Amazing. it was over a year until she went out with me. Right. Mm. So there was some convincing to be done. There was a lot of convincing to be done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a wonderful story. I don't think though. she noticed me for the first year. Right. You, you were on the committee together, but... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. Now, next up is one of my favorite interviews with Kit Hendon. And in that interview, we talked a lot about the concept of slowing down and not trying to do everything. But we also talked about a moment in her life when she realized that things needed to change. Here is that moment. And what were the barriers to, to getting into that sort of mentoring thing? It was just the self-belief that, that this would be too hard? Or? Yeah, I think because I'd had, you know, 15 years in my existing job and I thought, right, my, who mm. I am as a creative director of a design company, um, to sort of reinvent myself felt scary. It took a, a, a bit of a courageous leap mm. to do that. Um, was there a moment when you thought, I'm going to do it? Yeah. Really? I remember exactly where I was. Oh, okay. I was walking well, in the forest. Tell us about that. Yeah. I was walking up in Bowen, Bay, Bowen Vale Forest. I think I must have been listening to an audiobook, mm-hmm. and I suddenly just had the belief in myself. Wow. I'm going to do this. Yes. Yeah. Went home, looked up online, started booking courses, and yeah, it was a very exciting time. That's really great. Yeah, it had been coming for a long time. Years, years. It's interesting how it can be coming for a long time, and then there's a distinct moment that you remember that oh this is it because I think a lot of people probably listening 
you know, maybe they've got an idea or they've got something that they've been thinking through. Maybe I should do it. Maybe I shouldn't. Mm -hmm. And there can be lots of barriers, as we discussed, to actually taking that step and going, no, I'm going to launch out. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you can wait for the moment. I mean, I did have that moment. But sometimes you can wait for the perfect moment and it's never going to line up, you know, perfectly. Um, So you just have to go for it. Yeah. The very first interview that I put out was with Michelle Sharp from Kilmarnock Enterprises. And this is an extract from the interview with her where she's talking about what it took for her to realize that she needed to make a change and leave the job that she had in England and move to New Zealand. Let's listen in on that. Oh, that's good. So we've talked a little bit about startup days and and the hours and things. And and so you feel like you're getting to a point of burnout. Um, How do you how do you recognize that? Or, you know, how do you have the self-awareness to know, oh, I'm on the edge here? Or do you have the self-awareness? Because I think sometimes people maybe get to the edge and maybe fall off or get to the other side. And then they realize, actually, looking back, I was about Mm. to hit the wall. (laughs) But what was your experience of that? Yeah, for me, it was actually quite a physical experience. Mm. I ended up one day, something, I was incredibly stressed. I'll tell you what I was feeling. I was feeling like I was doing a bad job of being a mother. Mm. I was feeling I was doing a bad job of being a wife, a friend, Mm. a daughter, um, and also a business leader. I felt like there was clearly too much, that I was overwhelmed in, in life. And for me, the, the, the kind of crunch point was actually quite, um, quite physical. Something um, at home, I was at home at the time, something quite minor triggered me. And I ended up literally, this sound came out of my body. It was like a whale sound that I hadn't intentionally created. Mm. And I kind of went, whoa, that's, that's a signal. <laughs> that there's a bit too much going on in my life. And I... I realized that the environment that I was in, the startup environment I was in, well, by then we were five years old and we were very, very big and with huge growth, mm. was quite toxic. And I, I clearly had a very different way of wanting to operate a business mm. um, to my fellow directors mm. um, who were just about the money. Mm. For me, it wasn't about the money, even though I was the major, you know, one of the major shareholders. It mm. wasn't about the money. It was about the people mm. and being a good person and helping people get ahead in life, you know. And I think because of that, it became quite a toxic environment mm. and um, I had to get away from it. So. Yeah. so is that when New Zealand came on the scene? Or <laughs> Yeah, that's right. I got as far away. I knew I had to go far. It was my baby. You know, the yeah. company was my baby because although I was only one of, you know, one of a few founding directors, I guess I was the one that kind of created what it was and I was the, the one that um, managed the people. So it was very much my baby. Mm. So at the time, I really realized that if I was going to exit, I had to go far away. Mm. So how far can you well, go? <laughs> yeah, that's right. You can't get much further, <laughs> can you? Yeah. <laughs> so, yep. so, you, so you moved it. all that work that was in London, was it? Or um, no, it was in the East Midlands, actually. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So you're leaving England behind, leaving Europe behind, the high pressure stress there. Mm-hmm. And moving to New Zealand, where did, or what happened next? Did you come straight to Christchurch, or were you? In yeah, other parts? so um, we decided clearly one of us, other my husband and I, needed to have some income. So um, he applied for a role at Telecom at the mm-hmm. time, um, or Spark now, and he actually just about left within a week. And I based, I, I um, shut up shop as such, closed the home, and got rid of you know finished our lives in the UK right. over the next three months, and then met him out here in Christchurch. Right. So a very big change of um, pace for me. So mm. I made a very deliberate decision again not to go straight back into work. That the reasons that I was leaving the UK was really important to me to reacquaint myself with my children, mm-hmm. um, who kept calling me by the nanny's name <laughs> by accident. <laughs> you kind of know that something's, something's not quite right. <laughs> yeah. um, 
and luckily enough, you know, they were two and four, so they mm. don't recall. It was great. It, mm. You know, we made the decision at the right time. Young Had enough, I left it yeah. a few more years, it might have been an issue with my daughter. Mm. But um, it was great. I was able to spend the time that I wanted to settle them into um, a new different mm. world, a different life. And um, gosh, it's the best decision we ever, ever, ever made. Mm. I don't regret it for one minute. Wow. In fact, I get quite scared at the thought that we may not have made that decision. Right. Almost, you know, you think. Because the temptation must have been there if you were right at the beginning of that startup and it was going well and you know that's right you could have gone the other direction couldn't you and and gone harder gone further with that yes that's right so um we came to christchurch uh, towards the end of 2009 um and i very deliberately uh took well i gave myself as long as i needed but uh, in the end i took six months to get the kids settled into preschool and um, my older daughter into school um before i started looking at what that meant for me in terms of my career yeah yeah now, next up is my friend, Dr. Jared Gilbert from Canterbury University. Now, Jared's an expert in gangs, and that was the subject of the rest of the interview. But he also described this moment that happened to him when he was young, and it really changed his life. So we're here, we're actually doing this recording at the University of Canterbury because you're here. Is this where you came to study as well, or were you yeah, that, started well, in is, well, I Actually, I initially went into um, advertising, actually, and I got a scholarship um, uh, I did some training in advertising and got a scholarship into an advertising agency under a guy named Peter Grace. Um, and I've always remembered the name because I got offered a job at the New Zealand Herald as a gopher in advertising. As a, mm. And he said, and I remember it so clearly, he said to me, don't um, don't take the job, Jared, it'll kill your creativity. And I said, well, I'm thinking really? about going down to Christchurch to write a book, write a novel. And he said, well, I'm not sure I'm happy about that either because you'll become an alcoholic. I'm really an alcoholic, <laughs> but you'll become an alcoholic. He said, right. join the university if you go down to, uni- to, go down to Canterbury. And, and, and that's what I did. Huh. And, it, and it turned out to be the, you know, that one man, wow. I think, gave me the best, adv- probably the most important advice of my life. And, I, and actually, an ex-girlfriend of mine actually tracked him down about five years ago. So I went down and saw Peter Grace. He's now living in Dunedin. Um, huh. and so it was nice to meet this guy who, who this, this was sort of a couple of sentences pretty yeah. much sort of if not changed my life, it certainly sent it on a, on, on a path that is what it became. Yeah, isn't that interesting how a moment in time yeah. that, that somebody speaking into your life at a critical moment could have such an impact? It's such a very specific one that I recall so well, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and of course that works so, um, so horribly in reverse as well, um, where some bad decisions or some bad people can get in here um, and it can send you down a completely another mm. track and I, mm. I, I think about gang membership or, or I think about mm. some c- crimes that I've, I've studied where people have just made terrible decisions in an instant yeah. um, they may not even be decisions that necessarily reflect who they are they're just a decision a bad decision or a bad circumstance or something that and suddenly you know life changes altogether so yeah. you can, it can swing one way or the other there's a there's sort of a it seems to me to be a you know a heavy influence of luck or whatever you might want to call yeah. it you know, in life that um, yeah, you, you couldn't have you, you couldn't have predicted it, could you? In a way, like that conversation that day, then altered everything that's come. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, and, and 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 in the very best, um, in the very best possible ways. Yeah, well, that's really good. And um, when you tracked him down, did he? I'm guessing he would never remembered that conversation. Um, did, did he have a memory? Like? No, he, no, he didn't. Yeah. Um, no, he didn't. Obviously, he remembered who I who I was because we, we worked together a bit, or he mentored me. Yeah. Um, but he didn't remember that specific conversation. And but that's interesting in itself. Um, that it wasn't a big deal for him. It had no impact yeah. on his life whatsoever. And so unmemorable that he that that, that, it, that it had slipped his mind probably minutes after he'd said it. Right. Well, 
again, isn't that sort of fascinating in yeah. itself that it was something that was so big for me? And 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 maybe it maybe it says, and maybe we read too much into these things, but maybe it says, you know, we ought be mindful of how we communicate with what we do. If, if you can say kindness, give some kindness. Don't mm. don't do you know because because yeah. certain things can have big influence, you know, big impacts. Yeah, I think. and I and think, I think with, you know with social media, I don't know how much you use social media, yeah, Stephen. Yeah, quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, certainly Twitter. I've I've I've, I've sadly become. Um, quite, re, re, you know, reasonably. Oh, I use it quite a lot. Um, and the nastiness and, and things on there that can yeah. sort of occur. I, I think, you know, there's not enough kindness in the world. You know, I don't think we need to start throwing more around, throwing you know, more for, barbs for, of, for, for yeah. fun. You know, and which it does seem to be almost a sport. You know. Yeah. No, I I agree with you. And I think the the amazing thing is to think about somebody who's 17 or 18 who's at that critical point. Like all of us in our lives would have people like that, whether they're nephews, nieces, or children, or whatever. Yeah. You know, the, the role that somebody who's a bit older or seen a bit more of the world can actually play. And I guess thinking about it, like, here, you've told me what your plan is. Have you thought of this? Have you considered this? You know, like yeah. that advice to you. Yeah. Go to university. Well, I think um, young people are so vulnerable, aren't they? It's, I mean, it's such an awkward period in mm. your life, particularly those teenage years. And if you think about our stats around um, youth suicide, you know, a lot of young yeah. men particularly suffer so badly. I mean, I've, and I've, for whatever reason, I've never abided by bullying. When I was a, when I was a kid, I used, to, I used mm. to bully the bullies or, or, or intervene in bullying situations. It was one of those things, but for whatever reason, it's always bugged me. And I, yeah. to this day, I, nothing makes me more infinitely sad than thoughts that kids are a bit, you know, I don't know. A kid being sad for some reason is, is mm. the end of the world. I, I, I don't yeah. know, and I, and and it can be quite minor things because I mean I've existed, or I've investigated families that have been terribly poor mm. um, and, t- and 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 incredibly happy. You know, mm. so it's mm. not it's not necessary about that. But the worst ones I've seen have have tended to be in poorer communities where yeah. kids just have so little. Yeah, you know, and I and I think of what I. Ha- have had and what I have now, just I, I, yeah, mm. it, you know, genuinely it breaks my heart to a degree. I, yeah. for, for for whatever reason, I, I'm, I'm very soft around that and and animals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now we're going to turn to my friend Tim Jones, and he has a fascinating story about his journey from the corporate world to becoming really focused on purpose. And he's now known throughout Christchurch and probably New Zealand as the Grow Good Guy. But let's listen in on what it took for him to realize that he needed to change his corporate job and look for something else. And what he found was the B Corp model. Here's what he had to say about that. I spent most of my career selling medical devices Mm. uh, to orthopedic and neurosurgeons, um, which is such a random job to get into. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a very niche industry um, that you do kind of get into. Um, And obviously my training for that was I have a degree in medieval history, not medical history, as some people think I say. Um, and did that and enjoyed that for yeah about 10, 10 or 12 years. And then, but just started, I guess, understanding more of the economics of healthcare and how, um, I guess, a lot of the big companies and um, even down to how some of the medical professionals operate globally, mm-hmm. um, but also within New Zealand. It, it was all about the money, not the, not the outcome. And mm-hmm. so that was like, that was the beginning of, starting to question i suppose mm. um and was what that I was, working a, in. was that quite a gradual process or was it something that you kind of woke up one morning or how did it happen for you Th- there was sort of two parts really there was there was a gradual build up of underlying evidence and data that i kept kind of coming across mm. um but the the real um i guess epiphany for me was was the birth of my daughter and it's interesting i've been doing some research just this last week on 
how the unconscious controls so much of your life. Mm. Like 95% of our decision making is made subconsciously. But there are, and there are four four kind of well-known mechanisms of how to break your subconscious thought patterns. Okay. And one of them is a big life impact mm. and included in that is the birth of a child. Right. So this was this was like that that was like the the moment when mm. I remember I came home from work and I, I said to my wife I can't do this anymore. Hmm. I cannot work in this industry anymore. And for me, it was, you know, the birth of my daughter and just sort of going, well, if I'm complicit in a lot of this stuff that's going on in this industry, I mean, I'm not actually actively doing it myself, but I'm giving it a level of agency just by being here. And I don't want to be doing what that's, you know, or involved with that. So that for me was like a real watershed moment, Mm. which it then took maybe another two years for me to kind of really understand what my real purpose was, what purpose meant. It it was such a new topic. I think purpose in general, Mm. um, it's almost a trend. um, And I think that there's a danger to that. I think that there are lots of people and organizations that are seeing purpose as a trend. But for me, it was very much like, like I say, a two year journey of, well, now that I've almost seen the world for what it is and what it can be, and I I don't really like it. Mm. And I don't want my daughter to have to put up with this what's my part in that and that was a really interesting journey (laughs) Mm, yeah i can hear that so you had the watershed moment you had two years of exploring and then was there another moment when you said right i'm ready to launch out yeah i mean one of the other i guess parts of that journey um like when i quit selling medical devices i i kind of thought i don't really know what i want to do i know that i don't want to do that Mm. and i think i was still very much in a in a very I guess, business as usual paradigm. It's like, well, I'll try a different industry in a different role. Mm-hmm. So I ended up in the, in, the, in the world of commercial property, working okay. for a firm of surveyors and engineers. And very quickly sort of established, well, okay, it wasn't just the medical industry. It seems to be that business has some challenges mm-hmm. um, around just how it operates and how it interacts with individuals and the world around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually did, was doing some research trying to get, find a bit of a cultural fix for, for the company I was working for because there were some interesting behaviours being exhibited in, in the business. Mm. And through that, I, I literally just Googled, you know, HR culture fix program. Right. And B Corp mm. was the thing that popped up. Mm. And this this was like, I suppose, the, I guess this was the, the light at the end of the tunnel. This was the, okay, there's something here. This this is beginning to make sense. Mm. Um, yeah, I discovered B Corp. And okay, okay, this is more than just you know, human interaction and, and working with employees. This is, you know, how does your business operate in terms of its community impact, its environmental impact? Mm. You know, what's holistically, how is it operating and impacting on the world? And I was like, wow, this is, this is something. This, mm. like, this, this makes a lot of sense. And so initially I thought, wow, this could be really good. I, I bet there isn't one in New Zealand. Maybe this company could be the first one. And mm. I went on, uh, looked at the Beacon website. I was like, oh, there's one in New Zealand already. And then I looked again, oh, there's two in New Zealand. I thought, hang on a minute, one of them's in Christchurch. So I thought, well, I'll give this guy a call and see yeah. what he knows. So Steve Arder, who's the CEO of Eagle Consumables, um, the first B Corps in New Zealand, the biggest B Corps in New Zealand, I just sent him an email and said, hey, this B Corps stuff looks interesting. Can I have a chat? And um, I think we booked an initial sort of 30 to 45-minute coffee catch-up at his office. And then about two and a half hours later, I left his office with my head just completely expanded but equally confused and okay like there's so much good stuff here to unpack Mm. now I don't know where to start so I kind of yeah went on a bit of a journey of sort of meandering and wandering to sort of find okay what's missing like what what is the thing that I need in my life and then I kind of discovered it was this purpose thing and and there is a there is a movement there's other people that have kind of 
I guess, you know, there's a few people I've, I've had conversations with recently. One lady in particular, she just moved back to Christchurch. She's been working for a B Corps in Melbourne for a few years. And she's like, I can't even, the thought of getting a job in a normal company, mm. I can't imagine it. And this is the thing, once you find purpose, there is no going back. Now we're going to jump in a completely different direction and have a chat with Dr. James Austin from the Harvard Business School. Now this interview is actually incredible because James was involved in founding the Social Enterprise School at the Harvard Business School, and this is like decades ago. And the other thing that was special for me is that he knew my father back in the 1960s because they were in something called the Peace Corps and trained together and then moved to Chile. And here we have an extract where James had to think through what he was going to do with the rest of his life after he'd finished the Peace Corps. The question is, what do you do when you come back? Mm. Uh, my, my goal was I wanted to go to graduate school. My dilemma was I didn't know exactly in what. No, I, I did have two, two alternatives. One, get my master's in business administration, continue that, that path that I had started in undergraduate. And the other was law school. You know, your profession. Right. I said, well, you know, what, what should I take? I mean, uh, law, pursuit of justice, that resonated with me. And mm-hmm. uh, business school, I kind of know what that is. And, and I said, how am I going to resolve this? I really didn't have a fixation on one or the other. I said, you know, I'll be very rational about this. I'll take the two graduate entrance exams one for law school, one for the business school, and whichever the score is higher, comparative advantage. That's if it, you're better yeah. at this, go there. <laughs> I went into Santiago, you take the test long distance, results came back, looked at them, they were exactly the same. Wow. <laughs> had no help at all. <laughs> and so then it was oh, a question dear. of, well, you know, I've been working with small farmers, and, mm. and one of the critical bottlenecks to their bettering themselves and their families' lives is is how to organize the resources and their operations. And, uh, and so I said, well, I know that this is important. Mm. The law, I don't know exactly what it would be. Sure, and so I yeah. opted for that, and I, I applied to the Harvard Business School. It was the only school that, that, I, that I applied to, and there's a reason for that, but... Uh, uh, and uh, was admitted, and so we came back to the states. And Kathy and I were hired for a few months, also like like Norm, uh, uh, but on a short term basis to to help train the next set of volunteers coming to Chile. And so we did that for a few months, and then and then uh, went to Boston. I can hardly recommend that interview to any of you who are interested in social enterprise, because James had a huge amount to say about that. And he's been involved with it for literally decades, so it's a fascinating interview. Now we're going to jump over to an entrepreneur, Michael Mayo, who founded Cookie Time many years ago. And this is an extract from the interview I had with him where he's describing that moment that he launched out and started Cookie Time and what that involved. Yeah, so I remembered being stood in front of the Mrs. Fields Hot Cookie Shop and uh, I thought, right, well, that's what I'm going to do now. So I got out a piece of paper and started calculating how much it was going to cost to open a shop, a retail shop in a high-foot traffic area. And what did you know about cookies and baking and... That type of thing. Absolutely nothing at this point in time, mm. but I was about to find out. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, um, anyway, basically, I worked out very quickly that there was no way I could afford to copy Mrs. Field's idea, um, which was a hot cookie shop 
uh, in, a, in a high foot traffic area selling fresh cookies baked on site by the pound. So one thing led to another, and I ended up um, launching a big unwrapped cookie, um, four-inch diameter cookie with huge chunks of chocolate into mm. 70 cookie jars in 70 dairies uh, in Christchurch. The cookies wholesaled for 40 cents each and sold for 50 cents each. And uh, they were basically an overnight sensation, the complete opposite of the two businesses before. <laughs> wow. Um, and the first week, 5,000 cookies were sold. Uh, and the first year, $240,000 was turned over. And that's back in 1983. So mm. that's a pretty successful um, first year. And what did you learn from the two failures, or, or you know, whatever you wanted to call them, but those experiences that you took to that third business? The only thing that's coming to mind is just don't give up. And, and I wasn't going to give up. I was just going to basically keep on going until I found something that worked. Mm. And so if, if the cookies went, hadn't worked, there would have been something. Yeah, because basically what I decided at the age of 20 was if I have to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week to become a millionaire by the time I'm 30, I'm prepared to do it because... I can then sit around on the beach drinking pina coladas for the rest of my life if I want to. <laughs> so I was, I was totally and utterly willing and committed to, to doing whatever it took. And, mm. and I think because I went into the businesses with that, um, with that background, mm. it just gave me the certainty mm. that I was going to get there eventually. Because mm. even if you just worked, even if all you did from the age of 20 to the age of 30 is work in a regular job and save every single penny and invest it, you, you'd blimmin' near be a millionaire by the time you were 30. Mm. So um, anyway, yeah. that, that was so the... So it was the drive and the focus and the determination not to give up. That was the correct. unique yeah. factors. Yeah. yeah. Now next up is my good friend Camille Yang, who's doing amazing work with a group called OHU. And this interview was really deep because she'd come from Europe and moved to Christchurch. And this is her describing the moment when she realized that Christchurch would be the place for her. Um, and, and so I just started searching, mm. and a friend of mine invited me to teach a course at the University of Auckland. This was before the earthquakes, and then the earthquakes happened, and he said, would you mind if we shifted the, and focused the course on Christchurch? And I said, no problem, mm. that'd be great. Mm. But I'd never visited Christchurch, I'd never visited New Zealand, and I'd never taught. Mm. So before the course, I came to Christchurch, and it was 2011 um, in August, and mm. it was devastating. So I had left my job six months earlier, I can remember the day I was crying on a bench going, I'm so insane, what am I doing here? And I'm in this post-apocalyptic city going, this is way too big for me. I've bitten off more than I can chew and I'm totally alone. And it's snowing and it's cold. And yeah. And, um, and then I started thinking about what it was that I was really looking for. And on that park bench, I realized everything that I was looking for was right in front of me. And I often go back to that park bench. Um, and think <laughs> Is that, it still there then? It's yeah, a Hadley yeah. Park. It's under a uh, camellia tree. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so that's when I decided I was meant to be here in Christchurch. And, huh. and this, is, this was the path that wow. was in front so of So sitting on a park bench in Hadley Park, yeah. you had that revelation. Yeah. And I went from crying to laughing and jumping. And if anybody was watching, they probably thought I was insane. <laughs> so, that's yeah, quite a contrast. Was, yeah. And it was funny because I kept trying to bring myself to, what is it that I'm looking for? If this isn't it, where am I going to go next? And right. just trying to keep myself going. Mm. Um, and then I remember rattling off the things I was looking for, and I was like, oh, my God, that's right here. Uh, and it just it was kind of disguised, I mean, really disguised, because right. the city was so intensely devastated. And I had never seen anything of that magnitude, and mm. it really took me. I mean, it was 
two weeks where I was, I mean, I was shaking. It was so mm. hard to see mm. um, and experience and, mm. um, you know, just that level of devastation. The yeah. city under a cordon. Because for people who are listening who weren't here, I mean, that was like how many months after? That's like only three or four months yeah. later, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah it's... Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, it was a yeah, very, very challenging time. Yeah. But then I went on to teach that course. Yeah. And yeah. sorry, just before we talk about that, so you're sitting there on the park bench and you start smiling and laughing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, can you just describe that moment a little bit more? Because I'm just curious. I'm always yeah. curious about points in people's well, lives <laughs> when things change. It was also my birthday, which right. I was probably not sharing. Um, and, I, you know, it was, it was, it took a lot to give up my job at Herzog and Demron. And it was a great job. I loved the people. I was working on the world's best projects, you know, People just don't get those kind of opportunities. My friends thought I was insane. My family thought I was insane. It's not going to get any better than this. Don't leave there. And I, there was something that I knew I just wasn't going to be. It wasn't my home. Mm-hmm. And I knew I needed to find one. Mm-hmm. And I knew I needed to be able to have a, a place to test what I had learned. And I was. I didn't want to always be working for. I wanted to be working with and mm-hmm. or um, mm-hmm. set up a practice that meant something to me. And I thought could make a difference. And so you found that as far away as you could possibly get pretty much from well, from Europe. You know, on a park bench in Christchurch. You know, I mean, after working in these global firms, the world actually feels pretty small. Yeah. Um, so we had been traveling a lot around the world and we had projects around the world. Sure. Um, so it wasn't hard for me to imagine going somewhere anywhere. And mm. I was looking all over the world. I was looking in Brazil. I was looking in Canada. Mm. I was looking in Asia. And I was trying to find uh, where, where these ingredients were that I could really put to test what I yeah. what I had developed in my, in my yeah. thinking. And there, Christchurch losing you know, so much of its main its city and also having such incredible resources to rebuild with, it was going to build in, you know, five years, what we would have otherwise seen in 30. Mm-hmm. And my art form is urban. Mm. And so that's actually a really unique opportunity when this is my art form to see how much can be done in a short period of time. Mm. You get to, unfortunately, when things happen over 30 years, it's very hard to assimilate and it's very hard to see. It's actually so slow that you actually just adjust to it. Mm. But when it happens in such a short period of time, you can m- much more easily notice and see what's mm. actually happening. Um, so it was an incredible opportunity for me. And it wasn't, I mean, I had already lived around the world, so it wasn't hard for me to pick up and live yeah. somewhere else. Now, in the next extract from the interview, we're going to talk with Gary Shaw. And I really love this interview because Gary was so transparent with the depression that he suffered as a result of the intense nature of the job that he was doing, going into Southeast Asian and other countries and helping to rescue people from sex trafficking and other awful situations. Have a listen to this extract. Many of them would run away from the safety of an aftercare home back to those environments because although it was hell, it was familiar. And uh, those chains that um, that enslaved them were were comfortable chains. and. And the idea of, of the terrifying idea of, of uh, trying to find a life outside of that place of slavery was, was um, just too terrifying and too unfamiliar. And, and so that was devastating as well and very confusing. Hmm. Um, t- so even the ones that you'd rescued, sometimes they would go back. And then, because I can imagine, well, I can't imagine, but, um, you know, a normal nine to five job, you're selling paper or something. And, oh, I sold this much paper. It's not the same, not same lives in the balance, is it? And um, so that must have been, I guess, a growing weight on your shoulders. Is that how? 
Absolutely, incredible, incredible weight, and uh, it, it became all-consuming for me, which is where I lost the uh, my way. Mm. Um, I uh, found it increasingly impossible to forget those people that I had failed, and so I, even though I was back home, uh, I was still mentally elsewhere, mm. and I started to forget how to play mm. and how to relax and unwind. Mm. I, my mind was constantly thinking about. Um, where I'd just been and what I had done or uh, not done. Of course, that had a huge impact on my soul, <laughs> yeah. uh, my own boundaries, uh, and um, uh, and and had a big impact on and on our marriage. Sadly, and and so after four years, we came back to New Zealand. We tried to hold it together, but sadly, we we failed, and um, uh, for for a number of reasons. But um, yeah, I I. Found myself um, having set out to, you know, to make the world a better place. I, I found myself uh, d- divorced, depressed, and and full of uh, despair, mm. which was a, uh, a, yeah, a big shock. Not not a place that I. Yeah, it's quite a contrast to what you described at the beginning. You know, at university, seeing these people, or even as a child, wanting to be a superhero and fly in and save people, and and you'd kind of had the taste of that, but then. There's the other side, you know. Superman can't save everyone, can they? No, and that that was probably the 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 huge wake up for me, as naive as it as it may and childlike as it may sound, but just discovering that uh, I wasn't Superman. I was um, a man, yeah. uh, in some ways, just a man. Although I suppose I, I coming out of the other end of it, I, I think there is uh, magnificently a man, but a man with all of. Um, uh, the, the foibles and, and weaknesses and um, and brokenness uh, that we all share uh, in our humanity. And, uh, yeah, that was both uh, unsettling, terrifying, um, um, but it was it was the journey. Yeah. So just take us a little bit further on the journey. You've, you've come back to New Zealand. You've had these experiences overseas. Um, you're in a dark place when you first get back. Um, what's happened since then or, or where have things gone? Yeah, well, I think I learned through through that season of life that one of the most courageous things we can do, uh, especially as men, uh, and especially men in the West who are typically uh, praised for being self-reliant and, and resourceful, uh, one of the most courageous things we can do is ask for help. Mm. And uh, so during that time, I, I did. I, I sought the help of um, counsellors and um uh, you know the police were great in terms of of um, you know when the marriage fell apart, providing counselling and um, uh, you know I, the, the the police psychologist actually was very good. He uh, one of the first sessions where I sat down with and described a little of what I'd been through. He he was shocked that I hadn't had more formal mm. uh, debriefing and and care uh, and and self care going through that whole season. Um, uh, similar to, I suppose, what many have discovered in, in not just undercover policing per se, but in any kind of work where, where you're coming up against uh, human need and trauma, whether it's you know nursing or old age care or mm. uh, child care, you know, that you're coming up against uh, people in need, social work, um, that uh, we are not good at looking after ourselves right. and if uh, the, the research of, of Brene Brown and others like her in terms of uh, shame and vulnerability um, is true then then it is only to the extent that we love and care for ourselves that we can love and care for others mm. uh, and so you know in hindsight it, it wasn't um, I, I was a 
it certainly wasn't a surprise looking back given mm. given how little uh, care I was afforded and, and provided to myself that that's what happened. Now we're going to jump across the world again and talk with Elena Casalari, who's from Italy, and she describes the moment where she was in India and she looked out and realized that the job that she had really wasn't fulfilling for her. And then she goes on in the interview to describe how she became an impact investor going into Africa and India and other places and investing into social enterprises. Here is that extract with Elena. Just, just yeah. sorry to interrupt you, just that moment or that day that you were interviewing, you recall it that clearly? That like, clearly, yeah, yes. That's amazing. Yes, I, I, because, uh, well, as I say, it was a really a big inflection point and uh, I was with a client uh, and uh, we were in uh, this uh, shining building in Mumbai, in Mumbai the, the headquarters of the ICIC Bank, uh, one of the largest in the country. Um, and uh, we were at the... Then where probably was the 18th floor mm. of this new, new build, uh, new, newly built building, uh, and uh, I was looking uh, down from the window, and there was this huge slam there, and it was like uh, it was a shock um, because I was wondering exactly at that time what I was doing there. And uh, why I was not looking at those people down, but just talking uh, at the other people up. Mm. Because you can look at India from a different perspective. Down, really down to the pavement, at the pavement where people live. And up at, at the headquarters of this big corporation where mm. the other and the, really a minority of the population live and do business and run business, uh, mm. not caring about what's happening to the mm. really the majority of population. So. Yeah, thank you for explaining that because I think it's important to to capture those moments in other people's stories because it's it's so powerful. You know, like I I agree with you completely to look from the lofty tower out on the masses in the slum. You know, it's quite a contrast, isn't it? To, yes, it to is. To change your perspective. Yeah, and especially in India, when you you see people uh, living and dying uh, on really e in the street. And uh, so I was really wondering why I was not asking the right question. The right. people I was interviewing, I was not really putting my money and my clients' money into enterprises that could make a difference in the life of these people living in the street. Mm. So that was the moment when I decided that it was a, about time to really to make a change in my life, mm -hmm. uh, not caring any longer about making a lot of money and, uh, you know, traveling business class and uh, spoiling myself, entertaining myself in a um, beautiful hotel and uh, really glamorous life. Mm. So you were ready to embrace a new way of doing things, it sounds like. <laughs> yes, and that was the time when mm. people around me, my family too, thought that I was completely crazy. <laughs> right, because <laughs> you were about to give up something that you'd worked hard for yes. and uh, go a different way. Yes. Yeah. So when was that? It was 2005. Mm-hmm. 
And um, so, what happened once you'd had that realization? You're flying back from India, and you start talking with your friends and family and say, "Look, I think I need to do something different." What、yeah. does that? What does the shape of that become? Or how did you explore what the options might be? At that time, I realized that I was not fitting in any longer in in the in my life in the life I was really、uh, living at that time. But it took a year. Uh, before really making the move.、Mm-hmm. All right. To round off this compilation, we've got Stuart Dylan Roberts, and this is actually an extract from the interview just last week. But I was really struck by this moment that happened for Stuart in his life, where he took the plunge and decided that he did want to set up something called Digital Journey, which is a social enterprise. Have a listen to this extract from Stuart.、Uh, kind of the last question, but just thinking that moment when you decided to start. Mm-hmm. Digital journey is that a crystal moment that you remember, or、yeah. was it a gradual build up to a point, or like because sometimes I interview people and they remember a moment that、yeah. we're going to、oh, jump、gosh. in here. Yeah, no, you know what? It's it's actually it's actually very clear to me,、um, and it was I was sort of at a, in a in a sort of corporate environment, and and、uh, we we were doing a lot of work over the year helping some of the bigger businesses understand technology. And、um, a lot of the smaller ones would come across our table, and they, and they weren't given a look at because they were small accounts.、Mm-hmm. And、um, I had this inner feeling: this is not right.、Mm. Um, and then you're drawn into this sort of mode where the salary's good and the perks are good, and you don't want to leave.、Mm. And it's it's kind of traps you in that environment.、Mm-hmm. But in within me, I was thinking: this is not right. This needs to change. We、right. need, need to help everybody here. These、mm. these, these businesses are potentially. Will go out of business unless they start using technology、mm. better. Potentially, they're missing out to someone down the road, and they're employing people.、Mm. They've got families themselves. They, they've, you know, this is so important nowadays to get technology right. So it just didn't feel right, and that's where I decided. And、uh, I have to say, my my wife was amazing support here.、Mm. She goes,、um, more than happy for you to leave. Right. So I、um, I left my job. Um, and、uh, the first month when there's no pay packet was a bit hard. I'd <laughs> 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 be like, "What have I done?" What but, have we、um, done? Here? I know, but、yeah. it was, but it was, it was great, and it gave me that chance to think things through and to take、uh, this assessment. Like I say, it started off on our、um, kitchen table、um, yeah. into something that、uh, is now live and, and helping,、mm. and and likewise, write some training courses and and get some coaching ideas together and make a difference. And、um, and here we are today. Yeah. And I, I am so rewarded and so happy in what I'm doing. It's, it's、yeah. been incredible. So,、um, no, it's not the same financial benefits, but、uh, I am, I'm just、uh, very lucky that I feel I'm making an impact with businesses. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, I do hope you've enjoyed listening to that wide variety of voices and interesting perspectives on moments in people's lives. I found it was really fun to go back through the archive of the 52 interviews and look for these moments that were described and pull them out and compile them in this episode. And I think I might try to go back and look for other moments in interviews where there were significant things discussed. If you have some ideas of topics that you think would be fun to pull out from the earlier interviews, then drop me a line and let me know, because I'd love to hear your perspective. Well, if you've made it through this far, then congratulations. Although I think you'll agree that hearing that perspective from such a variety of voices about moments where things changed in their lives was actually pretty inspirational, and I hope you felt that as well. I really enjoyed compiling this episode. If you found any of it helpful, then I'd love to hear from you. 
And also feel free to share it with other people who might be inspired by some of the conversations that are recorded in this episode, because it really is a kind of best of the show. Now next week we'll get back into the regular pattern of an interview with somebody about their lives, but I do hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening.